Rabbanit Leah Sarna and Rabbi David Walkenfeld. Shalom and welcome to the Straw Hat. We're the official podcast of Anshe Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation. We're an Orthodox synagogue located in the beautiful urban neighborhood of Lakeview at 540 West Melrose Street, Chicago, Illinois. The purpose of this podcast is to take some of the Torah that is learned and studied and shared each week in our congregation and to share it with uh, our listeners. So what type of Torah is studied each week? We hear the Torah portion every week. We um, study Dafyomi. We learn Talmud every morning, weekday morning following Shachrit. Uh, there are questions that uh, arise in Halakha and Jewish practice because people turn to us for guidance or because of Inyan and Diyoma. There are calendrical events that require uh, halachic, uh, halachic guidance. So we will each week sample from some of these areas of Torah and share them with our listeners. In addition, each episode will feature an interview with some member of our community so that over the course of the weeks of listening to this podcast, you'll become familiar with uh, more, know more about some of the figures you see each time you, you come to shul. So coming up this week, our episode will feature a discussion of this interesting uh, calendar year we're having. We're in the middle of a leap year, and that raises some questions relating to the first month of Adar and the second month of Adar. So we'll be talking about that. Then we'll go on to an idea that's been uh, coming up as a big theme recently in Dafyomi. It's, it's an important idea in Hilcho Kashrut. So we'll be talking about that. And lastly, we'll have an interview with our very own Shul historian, Mr. David Passman. Now for our halakha section. This year, we have two months of Adar. We have finished Adar Rishon, the leap month added to our calendar to keep the holidays occurring in their appropriate seasons. And the Adar Sheni, the second Adar, is when we're going to celebrate Purim. But there are many other uh, questions that arise every time we have a, a leap year such as this one. So let's just talk through some of these common questions for leap years. So, for example, not every year has this leap month, obviously. That's why it's called a leap month. Um, but what happens, let's say, my parent, God forbid, died on in a year that wasn't a leap year in the month of Adar. So when do I celebrate the Yartzeit, for example? So this is a common question. Uh, the uh, There are those who say that a Yartzeit should be observed in the first Adar, in the leap month. Uh, after all, that's the first opportunity that that date comes across in the calendar. Zrizim Makdim in the mitzvot, why not commemorate as soon as possible? What does what does Zrizim Makdim in the mitzvot mean? We, those who are um, uh, energetic, we perform mitzvot as soon as we can, okay? Oh, right, right. So, uh, on the other hand, uh, the Purim holiday is celebrated in the second month of Adar. That seems to be the, the real Adar, as it were. Uh, and so maybe the art site should be celebrated in the second um, month of Adar. Uh, on the other hand, Purim being celebrated in the second Adar could also be because uh, of a thematic connection between Purim and Pesach, uh, which wouldn't really be relevant uh, for a yard site. So the truth is, when it comes to observing a yard site, uh, there are those who observe the yard site in the first Adar. There are those who observe the yard site in the second Adar. And there's also a very common practice, is what I recommend. Uh, this is actually what I do personally. My, my own father died in a in Adar, in a, a non leap year is to observe both uh, dates, both yard site dates in both months of Adar uh, as a yard site. There's really a uh, yard site is not a, uh, it's not a Torah observance. It's not a, it's not really a, a mitzvah per se. It's a practice to honor uh, the memory of the deceased on the anniversary of their death. And so to do it uh, two occasions in one year um, feels a little weird sometimes, but it, it is uh, what, what I've done uh, on years such as this one. 
So in the shul, we, we observe the yard sites of all sorts of departed members of the shul or even just people who members of the shul have paid for the shul to kind of celebrate that yard site. So you'll see their names on the plaques around the shul. And on the yard site of those people, we say a kalmale uh, for, their, for their soul. And we also um, say Kaddish and remember them. So what, how, do, how does the shul navigate that in terms of a, a year with two months of Adar? So in a year like this one with two months of Adar, we observe those yard sites twice. The cards get cycled through on two occasions. Uh, there are also, of course, people who uh, do pass away on leap years in Adar 1 or Adar 2. So those yard sites are only observed in a leap year on an Adar 1 or an Adar 2. But people who uh, die on a, uh, a regular year uh, in the month of Adar, those yard sites are observed in our country congregation twice. The cards get cycled through twice. So there's there's kind of a, a, another thing that can happen, which is a little bit the opposite of a yard site conversation, <laughs> which is that sometimes people are born. Yes. And you'll be shocked <laughs> to hear, sometimes people are born in a leap year in Adar or in a non-leap year in Adar. You know, we don't we don't just like put a, a pause on that. We've actually even had some babies in our show born in this leap month of ours. Thank God. Yeah. Yeah. yeah thank God. Um, and so, so then you have a question about when that child is going to celebrate a really important uh, birthday, like a bar or bat mitzvah. So let's say that year, 12 years or 13 years later, falls out. Let's say they're born on a leap year and they celebrate and their bar mitzvah year is on a non-leap year or they're born on a non-leap year, but their bar mitzvah year is yes on a leap year. So what are they supposed to do? So the, the Shulchan Aruch talks about this in Archive Nun, Nun Hay 55. Um, and, it, and it's a little bit it's a little bit complicated for the following reason. So the part that you would expect is that if you're born on a leap year and your bar mitzvah is on a non-leap year, then okay, you're born in one of the two Adars and you celebrate in Adar. And similarly, if you're born on a leap year and your bar mitzvah year falls out on a leap year, then that's also pretty easy. So like you're born on the 18th day of Adar 1, then on the leap year that's your bar mitzvah year, you would celebrate on the 18th day of Adar 1 again. Um, if you're born on a non-leap year and your bar mitzvah day, your bar mitzvah year is yes a leap year, then you celebrate in the second month of Adar. Um, for, even though, as we just discussed with yard sites, maybe there's something complicated about that. But but the the normal Ashkenazi psak, which the Mishnah Bura describes, is that you'd celebrate in the second in the second month of Adar. I, I just that I just want to add. I, I think that's in general just a safer approach. Unlike yard site, which is really a matter of custom, it's a matter of you know one's love for one's parent, which you can do early or late or, or really every day, right? Um, when it comes to a bat mitzvah, bar mitzvah, like you, even, even using the phrase celebrated bar mitzvah, but really uh, a more accurate way is becomes a bar mitzvah, right? Mm-hmm. When, when does somebody uh, become a Jewish adult? When do we assume that somebody uh, has reached Jewish adulthood? And, uh, and therefore, uh, we're going to be a little bit more cautious before we give somebody the rights and responsibilities of Jewish adulthood. Uh, and therefore, we're going to wait until that, that second um, adar, which again is the real like the quote-unquote real Adar, just sort of maybe a little digression about why, another reason why the second Adar is, is the real Adar. Before we had a fixed calendar, the way this all worked is that um, uh, the Torah tells us that Pesach has to occur in the spring. It's called Chodesh Aviv, the springtime uh, festival. Uh, and since the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar, which has 11 fewer days than a uh, solar calendar, right? Meaning 12 lunar months is 11 days shorter than the amount of time it takes for the Earth to go all the way around the sun, which means that if you just had a lunar calendar, 
Pesach would be 11 days earlier each year, and eventually Pesach would be in the winter. So what used to happen before we had a fixed calendar is they would go out and do uh, meteorological investigations. They would say, oh, like the frost is still in the ground in the morning, or it's really, really cold. I don't think we're ready for Pesach next month. Let's throw in an extra month of Adar. So that extra month that was added, uh, that that's the leap that's the leap month, uh, whereas the, um, the the second one is okay. Now it's now we're ready for um, uh, now Adar is is a, it's approximate month for Pesach. This is uh, the real one. So I guess for for B'nai Mitzvah, when we're trying to decide when somebody's a Jewish adult, uh, they were born in a regular year, the 18th of Adar. So let's wait till the 18th of the second Adar to really say okay, now this person has completed uh, 12 years and a day for a girl, or 13 years and a day for a boy. Right, and what it comes to show about the the becoming a bar bat mitzvah also is that it's not about a count of months. It's not like um, you know, whatever, 12 times 12 is th- that number of months needs to pass before you become a bar bat mitzvah. It's, it's really about like full years completed cycles um, that you've gone through before you become a Jewish adult. And and what, what the, what's at stake in terms of bar bat mitzvah, which we, we've kind of already said, is that um, you not just about you fulfilling kind of your own obligations as a Jewish adult, but often in our synagogue, especially we celebrate um, bar and bat mitzvah by kind of fulfilling obligations on behalf of other people. And when you fulfill an obligation on behalf of another person, you need to be at the same kind of level of obligated as as they are. So what that means is that a child cannot fulfill an obligation for an adult for example, because a child is less obligated in mitzvot than an adult is who's fully obligated in mitzvot. Right. So what would it go in the other direction? That Would we be lenient with a um, child and say you're not fully responsible in mitzvot, you're not fully responsible for your actions, for your sins, for your crimes, for the damage you inflict on others uh, because your birthday isn't going to be observed until the second adar? Would we, in other words, you, you, you gave an example where we're going to be strict and wait till the second adar. Would we be strict in the other direction as well? I, I don't know the answer to that question. I, 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 so. I mean, I think usually in the year leading up to bar mitzvah, we try not to be lenient in general. Sure, sure. And in some extenuating circumstance, though. I, right. Obviously, obviously, we, we have a mitzvah chinuch. We want to educate our children to observe mitzvot uh, uh, well before they're approaching bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah age. Um, I guess I wonder, is waiting till the second month, is that a chumrah? Is that being strict and careful? Or is that also, uh, in some uh, case, could it also be a kula? Right. So I guess the case where it would be a kula would be... Um, let's say you start putting on your tefillin a certain number, a certain amount of time before your bar bat mitzvah. So when you're, we're celebrating your bar mitzvah in the second Adar, but you were born in a year that isn't a leap year. So in order to be concerned to this, maybe you would start putting your tefillin on a month earlier than you would normally. Yeah. What if I don't know? What if somebody, uh, uh, somebody who's not yet reached the second Adar, damages something? Are they responsible for the for the nezek for the for for paying for the damage if they? You know, accidentally break somebody. As the opposed way. to their parents taking on yeah, that. Yeah, or, or if there's a... Some, My guess ex- is that no child has enough money to pay for their damages anyways. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Maybe. I, I, I tell... Yeah, when I... I sometimes tell my kids to think how, how many weeks of allowance or how much babysitting money would be have to be saved up to repair a, let's say, broken car window or something. But it's a very, <laughs> very, very long, long time. Long time, yes. Uh, one other case in the Mishnah I kind of, I think it's kind of neat to, to contemplate, sort of also in this uh, in the same Siman, uh, which is not about Adar, but it also is about kind of a, a variety that exists in the Jewish calendar. There are months, again, with our fixed calendar even, uh, there are some months that are uh, different... Um, numbers of days depending on the the where, where it falls in this 19 year cycle of seven leap years and the others regular years in this 19 year cycle there are also a cycle of how many days of 
Rosh Chodesh there is for the month of Kislev. Kislev can either have one day of Rosh Chodesh or two days of Rosh Chodesh. Uh, and and there, too, uh, it seems that we are – or not there, too. There, it seems that we are concerned um, with the – uh, the date, or not the, the date, the identity of the day as as Rosh Chodesh, rather than the calendar date of of the day. So let, let's sort of unpack that. When there are two days of Rosh Chodesh, which happens again from time to time throughout the calendar, the first day of Rosh Chodesh, really, it's technically the calendar date is the thirtieth day of the month that's ending. The second day of Rosh Chodesh is always the first of the new month. When there's one day of Rosh Chodesh. That day is the first of the new month. And it kind of goes into that same pattern with Adar, where like the second Adar maybe is more the real Adar, and the second day of a two-day Rosh Chodesh is maybe more like the real day of yeah, Rosh Chodesh. Yeah, right, correct. So somebody born on the first day of Rosh Chodesh, a year that there are two days of Rosh Chodesh. So like on his uh, Jewish birth certificate, it would say the 30th of um, of Tevet, um, which is the first of Rosh Chodesh Kislev, right? Uh, that Obviously. Uh, sorry, Cheshvan, thank Mark Cheshvan, which is the first, thank you, of Kislev. Uh, that person would, um, uh, 13 years later, in theory, if the calendar works out this way, uh, when it comes to, there is no uh, 30th of Mark Cheshvan that year. But so you could say it two ways. Either you could say there's no 30th, so it's just the day after the 29th day of Cheshvan, which happens to be the first day, this year happens to be the first day of Kislev. Or you could say, no, it's actually about the fact he was born on Rosh Chodesh, so we're going to wait and celebrate it on Rosh Chodesh. And that is what we do, right? That Mishabur says that explicitly that's what we do. It's Rosh Chodesh seems to be more important than having been born on the same calendar. His, his Hebrew birth date on his Hebrew uh, birth certificate said the 30th of Marcheshvan, but the identity of that day, the sanctity of that day was Rosh Chodesh uh, Kislev. We recited Halil in Shul that morning when he was born, and Tachun was not recited on the day when he was born. And so 13 years later, uh, should it work out, uh, we would wait for him to be uh, considered a bar mitzvah until Rosh Chodesh uh, Kislev, that same day with that same identity, that same halachic status, that same special sanctity. A, a kind of similar funny thing happened to me. So my half birthday is February 29th, <laughs> because my <laughs> birthday is August 29th. And in Massachusetts, you can get your license on your 16 and a half birthday. Oh. Um, um, and so it happened that when I turned 16 and a half, there was a February 29th. But what would have happened if there hadn't have been, I don't think they would have taken me on February 28th. <laughs> I would have had to wait until March 1st to get my license. That's pretty cool. That's yeah. pretty cool. And and we uh, there, there are a couple of cases where the, the, the these calendar rules can create some kind of uh, paradoxes where people who are born later are, in fact, observing a bar bat mitzvah much, much earlier. So yeah, was, so let's yeah. spell that out. Yeah. So let's say um, two two boys are born in a leap year. So one is born on the 18th day of the first month of Adar, and one is born on the first day of the second month of Adar. So in terms of like when their brises were... Which one is older than which? The one who was born in the first month of Adar is clearly older than the one who was born in the second month of Adar. However, if their bar mitzvah year falls out on a year which is not a leap year, and so they're condensed into one month of Adar, then the one who's technically younger has his bar, can have his bar mitzvah, becomes bar mitzvah, before the one who's technically older because they're celebrating it on those dates in this like condensed one month of Adar. So the one who's born in the second month of Adar, let's say, whatever, I forget what I said, the second day of the second month of Adar, his, his, he would become Bar Mitzvah on the second day of just plain Adar. 
unit Adar or whatever, <laughs> like the combined Adar, um, whereas the one who was born on the, on the 18th of Adar Rishon of the first month of Adar would still be the 18th of Adar that year. So they would actually kind of cross, like the younger one would become Bar Mitzvah first. Very cool. Very cool. There's another uh, similar dynamic that sometimes takes place when it comes to a, uh, a Brit Milah. Circumcision takes place eight days um, uh, following a birth, typically. Um, but uh, we um, we would only do we only do a Brit Milah on Shabbat if we are certain that it's the eighth day from the baby's birth. Actually, also if it's only only if it's a vaginal delivery, if it's a cesarean delivery, we don't do those brises uh, on on Shabbat. But but also we have to be sure the baby was born on Shabbat, which means that if a baby was born Friday night, the bris is a week later, Shabbos morning. But if a baby is and if a baby is born Friday afternoon, the bris would be eight days later, Friday morning the following week. But if the baby is born between sunset on Friday and Dark on Friday. We don't really know. Is it still Friday, or is it, uh, or is it actually already Shabbat? Um, we, we we don't do malach. We don't do work at that. We already let candles. We're 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 strict and cautious. But but actually, it's a it's a liminal time. It's in between the, the week and, and it's in between Shabbat. And so uh, we, we don't want to go ahead and, and authorize. Uh, the, the performance of a bris, which would otherwise be forbidden, if we're not actually sure uh, this baby is eight days old. So this baby would have his bris on, on Sunday. So you could have a similar dynamic of you could have two uh, two boys are born, one born on um, Friday evening, or... Friday night, and one born on Friday. Right, so one born, let's say, Friday afternoon, whose bris would be Sunday, and one born Shabbat. two hours later, right, Friday night or Saturday morning, who would have his bris, uh, uh, let's say, sh- Saturday morning, you know, a full day earlier than uh, than the child who was born after after him. And actually, uh, going into a three-day yantif, you could have a situation where a child who is born uh, first, earlier, between sunset and dark, could end up having a bris delayed three days over a kid who's born just a few minutes later, uh, who uh, whose bris we are certain would be on eight days later on Shabbos or yantif. Next up, an idea from this week's Dafyomi. An idea that has been animating what we've been learning about in Dafyomi this past couple of weeks um, is an idea called Tam Ke'ikar. The flavor is like the thing itself. So what do we mean by that when we say Tam Ke'ikar? Yeah, it means that the Tam, the flavor, right, is a concern for us uh, just as the forbidden item itself. So we're not only worried about eating uh, shrimp and pork. We're also concerned about eating foods that have become contaminated with the taste of shrimp or pork. So that can look Several that can take happen in several different ways. It could be that um, uh, some pork fell into uh, chicken soup that I was making, and even though I was able to remove the pieces of pork, uh, it was in there for long enough, and there was enough of it that the chicken soup now tastes like like pork, and that is something that can't be eaten. It also determines meaning this this idea of tam ki kar flavor is like the thing itself. Um, so much of the way we kind of live hilchot kashrut. Um, is driven by this. So the idea that I'm going to have milk eggs plates and fleish eggs plates. Well, if things couldn't impart flavor, then I wouldn't need those plates. Exactly, exactly. We're worried about um, pots and pans and silverware that I'm using with my to cook meat foods, then absorb that taste of that meat. And were I to use those same utensils to prepare dairy foods, then I the concern is some of that meat taste would contaminate the dairy food. And without intending to mix meat and dairy, I would be creating a product that had the taste of of meat in my in my dairy in my dairy as well. So that's also an application of this concern of Tom Kikar, uh, that we're worried about the taste just like the thing itself. I, I often tell people that this is the the single idea that uh, uh, you wouldn't necessarily know from a superficial reading of the Torah, but that uh, 
bridges that gap between the way the kosher food laws are are presented in the Torah. Don't eat this. Don't eat that. You can't eat this. And our current reality of two sets of this and two sets of that and being concerned about eating foods that have been cooked in a in a non-kosher kitchen as well. So how do how does flavor get imparted and how do I know whether flavor has has been imparted from one thing to another? Great. So the basic way that flavor is imparted is through intense heat, okay? Uh, something uh, has to uh, be, uh, uh, you know, piping hot uh, on the stove, uh, involved in, in a direct cooking process in order for taste to transfer from one thing to another, uh, which means that if some... Uh, uh, cold milk were to fall onto my, uh, I don't know, my, my salami. I could just uh, wash it off, assuming it was clean. I could actually get all that milk off. I wouldn't be concerned about about any contamination of flavor. So let's say in my fridge, I want to put ch- my cheese and my salami in the same drawer, for example. Someone asked me that last week. The that answer- should be, yeah, that should be fine. I mean, I, you know, I, I think, uh, uh, you know, you, there there could be a concern of if, if it's greasy, if it's, you know, if it's not, if, you know, then, then there might be some, some actually mixing, not of the taste, but of the, of the substance the itself. itself. If it's the cheese is a little oily and the sausage is oily, uh, that would be a concern of, of the thing itself mixing. But just having things adjacent to each other, even touching, if they're cold uh, and they're dry and they're clean, there's really no, no, no risk there. You could have, a, let's say I have a, a pot of chicken soup in my refrigerator, that pot, that cold pot on a shelf in my refrigerator can be uh, touching against uh, a piece of cheese. If I accidentally spill some milk onto that cold pot of chicken soup, that's also fine. Wipe it off. Uh, no no harm, no foul, okay? Because cold milk is not going to uh, penetrate. It's not going to give over its taste into that, uh, into that pot that is currently uh, containing chicken soup. We're concerned about things that are uh, in contact or proximity under conditions of, of intense heat. Okay, so then the next question is, all right, I have my chicken soup, it's boiling away on the stove, and I decide, oh, I want to drink some milk while I'm making my chicken soup, and accidentally some milk gets into the chicken soup. Dum, dum, dum. So, <laughs> so, so once upon a time, one method was you would you know, ask a, uh, if it was a Gentile, a food expert, a baker, a cook, uh, maybe taste the soup and say, how does this soup, soup taste? And if she would say, oh, it tastes a little bit like this milk in it, that's sort of a bold choice, uh, uh, you would say, oh, well, then I, I guess it's not kosher because it's, it was cont- there was enough milk in there to give over its taste. Uh, it was wasn't sufficiently diluted, um, or another case, let's say cheese falls in, and I remove the cheese, but I don't know, did it leave a taste in this in this chicken soup? Okay, uh, uh, that's generally not done now uh, for various reasons that the Rishonim and Achronim <laughs> discuss. Uh, the the various uh, centuries of rabbinic scholarship discuss. Uh, the, the more common method now is to assume that there is uh, no flavor that can survive being diluted in 60 times its volume. And so that's the evaluation we make, where there's 60 times the volume of the milk or the cheese of the non-kosher item that falls into the pot uh, in order to dilute it sufficiently that there uh, is no taste that's left over. And if there's not 60 times the volume, we're worried about the taste being left over. One important caveat is that not everything, these rules don't apply to all types of foods. Correct. They don't. There are, there are several categories of foods that are not nullified, that are not uh, diluted, even in uh, many times their volume. And uh, uh, this podcast is not the uh, uh, the time to go into all of them. I will say, though, that, that it's um, – this is an analogy I heard once uh, years ago from Professor Chaim Soloveitchik. He said that learning – uh, about Kashrut solely through these rules would be like learning to drive from reading uh, 
he said he said insurance company accident reports, uh. right? Because insurance company actually, you know, this car went here and it crashed into that, and this is the damage it caused, and this is how much, da, 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 right? So whereas learning to drive is avoiding accidents, okay? So how to keep a kosher kitchen, that's about um, avoiding accidents. It's about making sure that your cheese doesn't fall into your chicken soup and having good systems in place uh, to, to keep dairy and meat separate, to keep non-kosher ingredients out of your home, out of your kitchen, uh, so that you don't have these accidents where all of the laws, that you know, the examples that we've been studying right, in Dafyomi... Like how did pork fall into your chicken soup? Exactly. You know? Maybe you don't keep pork in your home. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So all of the, 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 the hundreds of cases discussed in the, in the Talmud and discussed in rabbinic literature, which are really important to understand the concepts and, and accidents do happen. You have to know uh, this... One, one should know this information of access to answers to these, uh, to these questions, but um, so many of our traditions and our practices about a kosher home are avoiding these accidents uh, to begin with. Uh, uh, a pound of, a penny of uh, prudence is worth more than a pound of uh, something, something, something. For our first interview, we have Mr. David Passman, a veteran member of Anshe Shalom and our in-house historian. And we wanted to ask you uh, to share with us the historical context for the name that was chosen for this podcast, the Straw Hat. What was the original Straw Hat and why is it an appropriate name to be associated with Anshe Shalom? The Straw Hat story goes back to the summer of 1870. There was a congregation in Chicago called Beis Medrash HaGodel, and a man by the name of Duber Ginsburg, Duber being a form of dove bear. Either he had a yard site to observe, or he was in mourning himself, and on a hot summer day, he went to the minion at Beis Medrash HaGodel to join the minion to lead it. He was entitled to do that, but because it was a hot day, he was wearing a straw hat. And the men of the shul took offense, not only wouldn't let him lead, they wouldn't even let him stay there, they threw him out. And he took offense, rounded up Lancelot from his hometown of Mariampol in Lithuania, formed their own minion, which they called Ohave Sholem, Mariampol, Lovers of Peace, known for a generation or more afterward as the Straw Hat Shul. What it has stood for, I think, since then is a more tolerant and a more flexible attitude once we know what the obligations of our faith and our rituals really are. If your head's covered, stay. The straw hat's more comfortable. Wear the straw hat. That's fine. Was it ever warm enough in Chicago since then to wear a straw hat? Probably, but they went out of style. I have one that my wife doesn't like, so it sits on a shelf. Came from Panama, I so think. Tell us as well uh, when when your family joined this community. According to my grandfather, who took out a full page ad in an ad book in 1945 when the show celebrated its 75th anniversary, uh, his father, my great grandfather, joined this congregation in 1895. And what we, what happened those first 15 years? Where was he? Uh, until 18. 18- 90 probably he was still in lithuania oh, okay. because we're excuses sent- excuses <laughs> yeah, right some of them are explanations and some <laughs> we're typical of the russian jewish history that changed with the assassination of tsar alexander the second who was probably the best of five romanov tsars where the jewish community was concerned but his son alexander the third was an out-and-out anti-semite It was one of his cabinet ministers who said of the Jews of Russia, one-third we convert, one-third we deport, one-third we kill. So the emigration started in earnest in the 1880s, and 
the record I found of my great-grandmother bringing the four children who were born in Europe was arrival in Montreal in 1890. My great-grandfather, Ellie Schlamey, was already here and, being a Marian Polar himself, went to the Marian Polar Show. His brother was here ahead of him and there has not been a break in our membership in this congregation since 1895 because while my great-grandfather was still alive, his sons began joining the shul. And even with the population shift from the Old West Side to here, his eldest son was already here in Lakeview. That was Barney, whose name is on the wall of our Beit Midrash, Mm -hmm. while my grandfather Jake was still on the West Side. And while Uncle Barney was still alive, my father joined. This is the only shul I've ever belonged to. Wow. So if I'm a member of Anshi Shalom and I happen not to know you yet for whatever reason, where would I find you? What kinds of things do you do around the shul? You find me at Shabbat and Yom Tov, way up front in row B. Uncle Barney liked to sit in the front, but he didn't want his books on his knees, so he sat in the second row. Uh, and I'm still there after all these years. And the weekday minion, because when I finished saying Kaddish for my mother, I couldn't think of a reason to stop coming to the Minion, so I didn't. That was 1967. Uh, I'm also pouring the scotch at Kiddush. You're welcome to as much as you can handle, (laughs) because I I know you're not driving. I have been, I was president longer and earlier than anyone else who's still alive. I was chairman of the board, cemetery superintendent. When I was secretary, I learned that the secretary really controls the history because nobody remembers at the next meeting whether the minutes are accurate. But we've had good secretaries. (laughs) And otherwise, we're a gregarious bunch, and I'm one of them. So come introduce yourself. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much. And I I would encourage everyone to do so, to introduce yourself to David Passman at the next chance uh, you have. Thank you. So for our final section, let's talk a little bit about what's happening at Shul. So on Shabbat, uh, March 16th, we we're going to be reading Parshat Zachor. This is one of the four parshiot, four special parshiot that we read this time of year. But this one is a Torah commandment to read and to remember the violence that Amalek perpetrated against the Jewish people on their way out of Egypt. Um, and this is a really important time for everyone to come to Shul on time to hear the special reading. We don't talk during it. We listen really attentively and and we we live up to the commandment of remembering the violence that was perpetrated against us. Great. In addition to the Hashkama Minyan and the regular Minyan that Shabbat, there's also going to be an additional reading of Zachor immediately uh, following Tefilot right before um, Kiddush, assuming we can uh, convince our Torah reader to stick around an extra few minutes so that, again, always a good idea to come to shul on time, especially for Shabbat Zachor, but we really are going to do whatever we can to accommodate uh, each member of our community um, being able to fulfill this mitzvah. So we always read Shabbat at Zachor, the Shabbos before Purim. Ah, very nice. Let's, <laughs> let's review the mitzvot of Purim, okay? Uh, so we're all, all together now. Uh, the first mitzvot of the Purim is to hear the Megillah read. We have lots of readings at night. We have readings again during the day. Uh, all the mitzvot of Purim are actually daytime mitzvot that have to be fulfilled during the day. Megillah is a little bit different because we get to do it twice, once at night and again during the day. Next up, we give some presents to our friends. Mishloach Manot, everyone's favorite mitzvah of Parim. 
common urban legend that you have to give uh, two foods that have different brachot. Uh, that's an urban legend that can be uh, the same bracha, but they should be two foods to at least one person. So that can be a lavish uh, gift basket to uh, um, five close friends. It could be uh, many, many, many uh, little uh, Hershey Kiss and a, uh, you know, and a little bottle of grape juice, uh, anywhere in between or, or more or less, okay? <laughs> Yeah, so the next one is uh, is uh, also about giving, uh, and we, we give gifts to the poor on Purim Day. Some people have the, the custom to anyone who asks you, you're approached on the street for money. If you don't normally give when people approach you on the street, this is a day to yes give and to give generously. And for those of us who mostly pay for things in plastic these days, it makes sense to make prepare in advance, get some cash, make sure you have bills to give out. It's a really beautiful day to feel very generous as we give thanks to Hashem for the miracle that was Purim. And to help facilitate people's observance of this mitzvah as well. The shul partners with agencies in Israel and agencies here in Chicago so that money that is collected at shul is given on Purim Day to Jews in need in Israel and here in the Chicago area so we can help facilitate that mitzvah if uh, you don't necessarily encounter uh, somebody who needs your tzedakah money on Purim Day itself. And the last mitzvah of Purim is, is sometimes tricky, actually, to fulfill um, when you go to work for a day. Uh, but the, it's a mitzvah to have a suda, to have a kind of sit-down, formal meal with bread and you wash. Uh, often best to share with friends. And this meal has to begin before sunset. It can continue into the evening. So that's the time. You know, Purim this year is a little bit late in the solar calendar. So uh, sunset's a little bit later. We've already changed the clocks. Uh, so you have some time uh, before the sun sets to wash, to have mozi, and to begin your Purim, uh, Purim feast. Uh, important to remember, Maimonides emphasizes this uh, quite emphatically, and uh, it's an important thing to keep in mind, that the money that we spend for Matzno the Evyonim, our gifts to the poor, should equal our total expenses for all our other Purim mitzvot combined. So whatever our costume costs, whatever we spend in our Purim meal, however much we spend on uh, ingredients and supplies for our Mishloach Manot, our gifts to um, to our friends and family, we should spend at least that much on uh, our Matzot Evyonim and our Tzedakah money uh, to the poor. Great. So I think there's some other stuff coming up at the show. How should I learn about that? As always, I encourage everyone to pick up a bulletin uh, that you get gets emailed out on each Friday or that you can pick up in shul over Shabbat and peruse it at your leisure. Lastly, we want to thank our producer, Haley Leventhal, for the hard work she puts in to make this podcast possible. If you have any uh, feedback or ideas for topics that we should address in future episodes of The Straw Hat, uh, please send them our way. And we'd love to hear from you. And also, if you just really love the podcast and want to send us fan mail, we always <laughs> love hearing positive things from people. Po- yes. <laughs> positive <laughs> feedback is always, always appreciated. Um, and negative feedback is appreciated, too. You can send those uh, in, in the mail, okay, to, our, uh, to the office, and we'll get to them eventually. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for listening, everyone. <laughs>